Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. And this woman arrived at the door and said, hello. I said, how are you doing, Mrs? I'm looking for uh, Francie, I think was his name. Could I talk to him about the incident last week? And she said, of course you can. And she, in a second, she disappeared. She actually stood to one side. And there, right straight in front of me, was the person I wanted to talk to. And there was the, the reason I wanted to talk to him in his hands. The shotgun was pointed straight at me. I'll never forget looking down the shiny barrel uh, and seeing these two old hammers looking at me saying, oh, fuck, that's an old gun. He squeezes one, and he's about 70 or 80, this guy. He squeezes his figure by any, I'm fucked. Because I couldn't back out, and I clearly couldn't walk forward. I've always been fascinated by the lives of crime journalists. It's a career that involves exposing criminals and crime gangs, sure. Putting yourself in dangerous situations, yes. And often being at the receiving end of death threats. But what is it like to live a life like that? And why would anyone want to get involved in it? They're just some of the questions that I wanted to ask Paul Williams, who is one of Ireland's best known and most experienced crime journalists. Paul has spent decades profiling some of, the, some of Ireland's most dangerous criminals and in many cases they have hit back to the extent that Paul ended up with 24-hour guard protection after a hoax bomb was planted outside his family home. A very convincing hoax bomb as it turned out. In this fascinating conversation, Paul tells me all about what life at the coalface of crime journalism is like. And then they came up and they put a very elaborate hoax bomb on the car. So that meant at three o'clock in the morning, they evacuated 150 of my lovely neighbours, lovely people, mm. from my cul-de-sac where I lived. Mm. And that's all designed to make your life miserable and make their life miserable because you're living beside them. And initially I wanted to become a war correspondent because, you know, like most young fellas, you're, you're trying to get a bit of excitement. You're looking for a bit of a buzz and you want something that's sexy. Like covering cattle marts in Carrigallon, wasn't it? These lowlifes were celebrated in a Catholic church by hordes of people who had absolutely no regard for the law, celebrated their lives of terror and crime. You know, they had a floral tribute of a fucking screwdriver that the main member of those three scumbags used to threaten to drive into an old lady's head. My full chat with Paul Williams coming up in just a few minutes' time. Thanks for all your emails and messages. This one from Tony came in. Hi, Mario. Just a quick line to say your podcasts are excellent. Really added to my recent family holiday in Tenerife, especially on the flights to and from. Thanks so much and keep it up. Cheers. And I hope this podcast series has been keeping you company whatever you're up to this summer so far. And don't forget to tell a friend about an episode you enjoy or a sketch that makes you laugh. Maybe flick them over the link on WhatsApp or just tell one other person about this podcast if you enjoy it. Right. Comedy. There's an awful lot going on at the moment, and so it was hard to choose what to do this week. But I decided um, we had an angle that we got uh, into Rory McElroy's uh, voicemails. And this whole live thing, Saudi Arabia, PIF. Oh, my God. It's mad what's been going on in the world of golf. Anyway, here's Rory's voicemails. So you've reached the voicemail of Rory McElroy. Um, yeah, just... Leave a message after the tone. Thanks. This tone was brought to you by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. Come with us. Rory, Shane Lowry, what's going on? Paddy Harrington just 
putting out all sorts of mad tweets saying, sure, look, Ireland thought it was acceptable to lock up on married mothers in 1996. Jesus, I mean, what the fuck? Yeah, Rory, yeah, it's G-Mac. Oh, I'm so stoked, man. You know, welcome aboard Live, buddy. You know, it's going to be great to have two Irish guys like us, you know, just chugging brewskis side by side going down the 18th down that desert. Yeah, yippee-ki-yay-yay, bro. Bring it on, Roars. Uh, hi, Rory. Uh, it's Paul Rick Harrington here. <laughs> it's mad stuff, isn't it? Listen, uh, I think I smoothed the whole thing over, though. I did a bit of a PR job. I put out a nice tweet yesterday. Got an unbelievable reaction. <laughs> I might put out another couple of tweets later. I'll get back to you. Rory, this is Donald J. Trump. I would like to congratulate you. Congratulations. Fantastic move. And everybody in the PGA for making the great decision, the right decision, to join the Saudi Arabians, great guys. And I would like to invite you to a four-ball with my great friends, Mohammed bin Salman and Kim Jong-un at Trump Doral. Great course. It could be a great move on your part. Wise move. Wise move. Good move. Uh, Rory, it's pouring again. <laughs> I think I have another one. Did you know that Ireland didn't have condoms till 1973? <laughs> and they're saying the Saudis are backwards. I'm putting that out straight away. And that looks to be a story that's going to run and run and run. Some awks moments um, in the offing there in the um, locker rooms coming up in the next few months, uh, I would say. OK, let's get to my chat with Paul Williams, one of Ireland's best known crime journalists. And he's also a particular way about him. And that's why he became a gift grub character. You scumbags. Toe rags are everywhere. Mario the Scrote Rosenstock. He's actually in my phone as Paul the Scrote Williams, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and I was curious about whether he minded me doing impressions of him. And when we were having our pre-interview chat, we started talking about it. And we turned the mics on in the middle of that chat. Anyway, here we go. So you didn't mind me taking the piss out of you on the radio anyway? Uh, never, yeah. ever, ever. I never mind it. I always mm. love it. I was actually going to the bathroom when I was on News Talk and I was listening and there was you were doing those that programme you were doing and you were talking to the kids and I'm going, that sounds fucking familiar. <laughs> and, and I was going cleaning my teeth. I was teeth, telling bedtime and like stories with yeah, Paul and Williams. Like this, and I was going like this and I was going, yeah. <laughs> and I was standing in the bedroom, nah, nah, it's not me. No. And then I heard, then he says, and then he was known to the guards and then something happened. And then one of the young lads shakes his head and he goes, scumbags. I said, it is me, that bastard. <laughs> Do you know who said scumbags? <laughs> it was my son. <laughs> it was my own. It was my, I, I taught your son. Yeah. So I, I actually started texting you that day. You fucking yeah. scumbag. It was my seven-year-old son. You can't swear in this, can you? You can, yeah. Oh, can you? Yeah, oh, fucking you can great. Swear, but don't swear too much. I mean, like, because it's just... Okay, fuck, 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 fuck. Get it out of your system. So <clears> apart from me doing you on the radio and because you're famous for this sort of carry-on, I wanted to ask you, like, did you, like watch for example cop shows or anything or this kind of stuff when you were a kid or did you want to be just a footballer or an astronaut the same as the rest of us no when I, when I was when I was a kid I I, I started getting a great interest in uh, in crime when I was about 16, 17 when I started taking my seri- my leaving cert and my education sort of seriously but my backstory was that I was in a couple of different I was in three different secondary schools in the space of five years and I was expelled out of uh, for what? To bad behaviour. What kind of bad behaviour? Well, well, you know, I can't really remember now, but it wasn't terribly bad when you think of it now. Like Not torturing a, dogs or anything? No, no, or shooting teachers. I did nearly kill a teacher one time by accident, but that was an, that was an accident. Yeah. I was throwing a bottle out through a window and it, it landed just beside this... Uh, 
priest's foot in St. Pat's in Cavan where my parents sent me to boarding school first year to see what I get in education. So it's just messing, was it? I just messing, yeah, yeah. 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 And I, I, you know, I just... You know, and you know, kind of see kid gets mixed up, and uh, you, you, I, I suppose I said for a little while, my uncle, who I was very, very, very close to, he was the sort of like the cornerstone of our family, and we had a family business, and he died suddenly after I was in first year, and f- I think that put me off the rails after that for a while as a kid, because um, it was it had a great disruptive uh, factor in all our lives in the family. Um, and this is in Leitrim now. This right? is in Leitrim, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we had a drilling company, and. Um, uh, and that's sort of like, and my granny died then three months later and I was very, very, very close to her and they, they were like, it was the family business. I was being groomed sort of from a child to become the, take over the family business. My uncle had no kids and and uh, granny wanted me to be running things and all that kind of stuff and get him an education. But I, but anyway, beneath the jigs and the reels, that didn't happen. And so I sort of got interested in, 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 in becoming a journalist. And initially I wanted to become a war correspondent because, you know, like most young fellas, you're, you're trying to get a bit of excitement. You're looking for a bit of a buzz uh, and you want something that's sexy. Like covering cattle marts in Carrigallon, wasn't it? Uh, so it would have been out in a war zone. And uh, so that's where I got an interest in it. And at the time, uh, you had to go apply to a course in Rap Mines. It was the only course of its type yeah. in the country. <clears throat> and you had to apply directly. You had to get so many honours in your leaving cert. And then you had to apply and go for an interview. And it was only 25 positions in the year and I got it. And uh, I remember just before, when I went for the interview, just about two weeks beforehand, I uh, took my mum's car one night while slightly inebriated and very wild and crashed it to a telegraph pole, almost killed all my friends. And I was up, my head was all swelled up uh, from all the stitches I got. And then I went into this interview and the first thing they said to me is, we noticed you were in three different schools during your, in your leaving cert years and... Could you explain that? So I decided to always tell the truth. What's the point in telling a lie? Yeah. So I said, yeah, I fucked up along the way and I was a bit of a wild young fella. And then uh, then they said, what kind of journalist would you like to be? And I said, I'd be a war correspondent. So I explained to them as well the injury I had in my head and where I got it from in case they had some mole down on the guards in Balnamore. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they were looking at a lunatic. They were saying, who the fuck is this guy? He wants to be a war correspondent. He stole a car, crashed it through a telegraph pole <laughs> and he's been in three different schools in five years. But they gave me a place. Yeah. David Rice, who's still a dear friend of mine, my course supervisor, he's yeah. still good. He's in his 80s. And yes. Still as sharp as ever and everybody of a certain yes. age in Ireland remembers him. So he, he was my lecturer. And this has been the course it. of your life ever since. Yeah. So then I... I, I I did one year. It was a two-year course. I did mm-hmm. one year because they always advise you if you get a job. I was offered a job yes. halfway through. I went to work in Longford first, the Longford News. Yeah. And then I went from there. The, the Leitrim Reserver then offered me my first full-time job. Yes. So, uh, And I was only there six months because I went back to Longford then, yes. which is much more bright lights in the big town. Yeah. Like, you know, and uh, that was how I started off. And, 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 uh, and Paul, it was yeah. rural crime that you were interested in at the beginning. Well, rural, rural, I, I found myself being pulled into crime. And... What happened was that, uh, and this is something that has been a trend through my career, mm. and I, I'm writing a book about it this year, but about all the different different stages in organised crime that I actually witnessed personally and wrote about and, and recorded happening and as they were happening. But in that year, when, when I went started working at the Leitrim Observer in September of 1984, a new phenomenon started, which we call now today's rural crime. Uh, this is where people travel around the country in Ireland robbing 
mostly vulnerable people in their homes. This it literally was the first time it ever happened and started. And we got a great tip one day, myself and Willie Donnan, the photographer in the Leitrim Reserver, that a farmer, an old farmer, uh, he was an old IRA head, uh, up on the side of Ochnashilam Mountain, which is the mountain that overlooks Ballinamore and that part of Leitrim and South Leitrim, <clears throat> and that he had been, these three or four of these guys had arrived at his house and uh, he sh- scared them off with a shotgun. So I said, Jesus, we'll go up there and do that. So we arrived on a Saturday afternoon, a cold, miserable, wet day. I remember it well. It's, it's inevitably etched in my brain. And I knocked on the door and this lovely old lady, it was a, just a plain cottage on the side of the hill with a little bit of a porch for around the door. You know, just that you walked into it, maybe just take the mean look at the house as well, you know. And this woman arrived at the door and said, hello. I said, how are you doing, Mrs? I'm looking for uh, Francie, I think it was his name. <clears throat> and um, could I talk to him about the incident last week? And she said, of course you can. And she, in a second, she disappeared. She actually stood to one side. And there, right straight in front of me, was uh, the person I wanted to talk to. And there was the, the reason I wanted to talk to him in his hands. The shotgun was pointed straight at me. I'll never forget looking down the shiny barrel uh, and seeing these two old hammers looking at me saying, oh, fuck, that's an old gun. He squeezes one. And he's about 70 or 80, this guy. He squeezes his figure by any, I'm fucked. Because I couldn't back out. And I clearly couldn't walk forward. And I put my hands up. And as I put my hands up, my colleague, I could hear the car driving away. <laughs> and I, I, I still slag him about that yeah. all these years later. But so this man, he said to me, I shot fucking black and tans and I shoot a dirty jippo like you. Right. So you're not going to come and rob me. And I said, sorry, I'm from Balnamore. I'm from, and I probably looked like a bit dodgy anyway. But I said, I'm from Balnamore, just down the road. I'm just down the road. I'm a neighbour. I'm with the Leachman Observer. I'm with the Leachman Observer. I'm just here to talk to you. And then he calmed down. The gun was put down. We had tea and cakes. But the point about that was, that was a baptism of fire. It was the very first time. And I didn't realise at that stage that, number one, that was the first time I could cover crime. But number two, that was the first time that somebody was going to threaten to kill me. Yeah. But this was the first time and the only time that somebody threatened to kill me with a, with a heart. You know, there were decent people. But literally, at, at a much more serious note at that time, I, I, myself and Greg Dunn, who was the the editor, the owner of the paper at the time, the Leitrim Observer, I had no car, so he drove me around and I got really enthusiastic. I started going around interviewing all these victims of crime, old ladies and old men. And I, remember, I grew up in rural Ireland. So this to me was an absolute shock to see people, because we were always taught to have great respect for the elder. Yeah. And we do and did have great respect for the elderly. But to see the fear in their eyes and that whole way of life was changing right in front of my eyes. Uh, And that was the first crime I ever covered. And that, what I took from that at the very beginning, um, that experience, has stayed with me all the way through my career. Because in 2015, I got involved in a campaign about rural crime. And I took to it like a duck to water because it it was something that was visceral to me it was it, it was in my it was very close to my heart i despise the fact that groups of professional criminals will get into cars and drive down the country to target a little old woman of 80 years of age in her home mm. or two old brothers in a home like there was there have been some horrific murders through the years and it is just one of those kind of crimes that still really f- lights the fire in my soul And also to round it off, to bring it up to modern times, you know, there's a lot of controversy around at the moment about this cop, Garda M, he's known as, who it was revealed is going to face criminal charges because he was involved in a chase with three notorious thugs 
uh, worthless, reckless, evil thugs who who specialise in this kind of crime, went around terrorising people. And they drove up the wrong side of a motorway two years ago and sm- turned into a fireball when they crashed That's into right. a truck. <clears throat> it was tragic and it was an appalling way to go. But they made their decisions in life. But then you said the funeral afterwards where these three... <laughs> Oh, I, sorry, I, uh, fuckers, for want of a better term. These lowlifes were celebrated in the Catholic Church by hordes of people who had absolutely no regard for the law, celebrated their lives of terror and crime. You know, they had a floral tribute of a fucking screwdriver that the main par- member of those three scumbags used to try threaten to drive into an old lady's head. You know what I mean? Like... And then one of the lines they had when they were doing a eulogy to this guy in the church, which it took over these thugs, their thug friends, was, um, you know the score, get down get down on the floor. That was one of their, <laughs> that was, you know the score, get down on the floor. In other words, you, the people I'm, whose house I've just smashed into in the middle of, middle of Tipperary or Leitrim or Mayo or Wicklow, uh, you know the score, get down on the floor, I'm going to smash your brains in. And that was celebrated on a church. Mm. And like that for me, every time I, I, if I see somebody, it just, it just like drives me mad. Get out of my way or I'll take your fucking head off. Sorry. Yeah. No, I remember. I remember the story exactly. And, and Sorry, I get so angry about well, it. But this is interesting. This is what I wanted <clears throat> to talk to you about. You get so angry about it. So this is a person who's been looking at this stuff for 40 years. You've been at the cold face of it, exposed to all these kind of you know, these, these these scumbags, as you call them. Atavistic reversions to a lesser form type would be one way of putting it as well, maybe, perhaps. But Go scumbags, on. OK. Yeah, OK. <laughs> well, you're the one that... Sorry, made, I'm trying to you're the one that here. coined it. <laughs> um, no, but you still get so upset. Oh, fuck yeah. It really, really, really annoys me. Um, Has... Uh, I, 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 I don't know why. I don't know yeah, why. Yeah, OK. But it's probably because I'm a culture. Uh, uh It's because of, like... I, I but all that so energy in 40 years, and what I'm trying to get to is that you, a, another person in your position may have become slightly inured to it. It hasn't, it hasn't, you you haven't. Well, that little part still, but I am inured to a lot of other stuff, you know, it's like I've been dealing with all kinds of uh, individuals and threats and crap from criminals for so long that yeah. there is stuff that you become inured to. One of the things you don't, you, you, one of the things, uh, if you want to, one of the, I suppose, ways of, uh, I suppose describing how you become inured is that I never f- would feel fear talking to any of those people. Never. Because I know what's going on inside behind the eyes. I don't understand that. You have to explain that to me. How because do you not they're, feel they're, fe- they're, fear talking They're bullies and bullies are cowards. Yeah. And like I despise as well and I've covered the stories and I've written books about these people. Like I'm thinking about the McCarthy Dundons off the top of my head. I'm thinking about that scumbag Liam Byrne who was arrested over in Spain. I'm thinking of Daniel Kinnahan. Uh, I'm thinking a lot of these guys, how these guys become, I, I remember a criminologist describing it uh, one time in a documentary I was doing. Uh, he said that the people living in certain areas where these people predominate, um, they find themselves becoming the prisoners in this open prison because their lives are blighted by these people around them. And the warders become, uh, the, the warders are the criminal class. And there's whole communities where these people infest everybody's life. 
I'm thinking young Keen Mulready Woods, that 17-year-old lad who was not just murdered but was deliberately cut up in pieces and his body parts put into a bag and deliberately and consciously taken from the scene where he was murdered and then brought down and put on the street in Kulak to scare the shit out of somebody. And all that, what was scary about that was that normally when bodies are cut up after a, a, a crime, it's a it's normally in, in, emblematic of, of, a, of a chaotic crime that hasn't been planned and people panic. And they, this wasn't panic. They cut this young lad up. The point of making is that this young lad was lured into that bling lifestyle that these people, when they dominate a community, and he was doing their dirty work for them in this drug gang. And he was 17. And because he got sucked far, so far deep in that when they killed him, then they cut his body up and used him then as a way of scaring other people. Like that is, that's that's a stay awake moment when you see that starting to happen in your society. But when did you learn that you weren't afraid of that? I mean, they cut him up because they know that it makes people scared. When did you learn that you're not scared of bullies? I, many, many years ago. I suppose always maybe. Um, uh Especially when people threaten you, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, and I'm not saying it from a macho point of view. I just didn't feel fear. Mm. Like I would quite, I quite very easily come down to their level and lash out at them, give them a dig. Mm. I gave a few gougers digs through the time, through the years um, when we got into slight altercations um, and it got a bit heavy and you have to show them, well, listen, hang on, I'm here just to talk to you, but if you want to get heavy with me, I'll give you heavy with you as mm. well. Um, uh, now, then again, it's, it's I suppose, it, macho talk, but like they have killed three of our colleagues now at this stage. Lyra McKee being the most recent one. They yeah. killed Veronica Gearn here, which was the one that's closest to me and to, to most of us here in this country because it was in the, in the Republic here. And then Marty O'Hagan, my friend, who I work with in the Sunday World, he was murdered in 2001. Um, I suppose the, the thing about those kind of people is that what happened Veronica and to Marty <clears throat> and Lyra McKee is that, that there were threats made against Marty, definitely loads of threats against Marty and Veronica. But when the time comes for them to shoot you, you don't have time to get scared or afraid of that because you don't hear the bullet. They just come. Um, so therefore, when somebody's making threats to you, you know we're in a, we're in a, we're on a path here. So at the moment, he's not going to take out a gun and shoot me. Yeah, but you have had many threats made against you. Loads of them. And I, I live with... Well, I, and how seriously did you take it? Well, I, some of them I t- had to take very seriously, yeah. But but when I say to you, I wasn't going around scared and sleepless nights about it, I didn't. Mm. But I was. I had I, to take conscious... I must conscious. Say I find that extraordinary, Paul. Do you yeah. understand how I find that extraordinary? Yeah, but yeah. I, 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 I've, I've tried to explain it to a few people before. And um, I would be scared about other stupid things. Like I would what? be scared of things that you wouldn't be scared of. Like what? Not being able to pay my mortgage. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Like that would really fucking freak me out, mm. you know, and upset me. Mm. Um, terrified of something happening to a member of my family and yeah. getting ill or something. They were the kind of fears I have or, you know, something happens so to you my don't, friends. you don't fear so much for your own personal safety? Well, no, because you, you do develop a sixth sense in this business as well. You do, you, you do, you, you can sense trouble. And I've sensed it many, many times. Uh, it's How? self-survival. Well, there was one stage where there were, I, I only discovered afterwards that I was being lured into a trap. I was back uh, in the 90s <clears throat> and uh, there was a guy who had gone run, run away from prison, escaped from prison. And I got a call from him, uh, which I thought it was him. And it turned out that Basically, it was an elaborate plot. I was going to meet this guy and bring him. Stikey Cahill was his name. Michael Stikey Cahill. Martin Cahill's brother, the general's brother at the time. And uh, he'd arranged that I would bring him back to prison. 
So I was thinking, geez, this would be a great story for the front page of the Sunday World. Me bringing Stikey Cahill, the general's brother, back to prison. It turned out in the end that it was a, a, a group of other criminals had come together with a fellow called PJ Judge, the psycho, who I'd exposed that particular year. And he had put a contract in my head. And basically what they were doing was they were luring me into a trap in an old, this dodgy nightclub out in Clondalkin. And um, that we were going to be taken out the back door in a van, myself and a colleague of mine, but he was going to get a smack and be left at, at alone, left back behind. Uh, I was going to be taken away and a judge wanted to have me tortured. And But he was some complete lunatic. He would have killed me. But afterwards, <clears throat> a guard who, who sort of liaised with me and my family for our protection, um, which they started doing in 1994, uh, he rang me and said, are you, are you, have you lost it? And I said, what do you mean? You were down in... in this kip in Clondalkin on, on Friday night, yeah. I said, yeah, I was trying to get Stikey. But what had happened was, I said to Liam, who was with me, I said, we got two bottles of beer. We didn't drink them. We just used them as weapons in case things went hairy. Now, nobody would have known me at the time, so it wasn't, I wasn't, you know, there was no big, I was just totally anonymous. But So we walked around, I met this guy, and he says, you're Paul. And I said, yeah. And he says, come with me. And we were going over to his toilet where I was going to meet this guy. And I remember on my peripheral vision seeing four guys at a table and they were acting very strangely. They definitely twigged who I was and they were starting to move. And I had given Liam the thing beforehand said, Liam, if we feel a bad feeling, we just get the fuck out. We just abort out the door. And instead of going right, I went left and Liam followed me and we went straight to the door and got out. And then we discovered afterwards, the following week, the police found out that the guys had a van out the back. So it was my sixth sense protected me that time. Mm. Uh, now, the guard used pretty unparliamentary language when he was telling me what kind of a gobshite I was for walking into yeah. that. But. What about Garda Protection? What is it like? Why, why did you get Garda Protection? What specific? Um, oh, there was a whole b- bunch of reasons. There was, there and was and what is reasons. it like? What is Garda Protection? How does oh. describe a day in the life of... <laughs> of a Garda protected individual. Well, it's it's a bit. Are like, you talking it, about like standing outside your urinals? Uh, no, no. But <laughs> I, I, they they gave me full time protection in two thousand and three, twenty years ago now. Why? Because they were going to kill. There was a, there was a group going to kill me, uh, uh, and there was there was a lot of other stuff going on, and then there was just intimidation. There was, there was it, it it was. I'm actually writing about it. I'm using the calling the chapter of the year living dangerously because mm. I'm trying to recall all the things that happened in that year. Mm. Like I had the police coming to me on a regular basis during 2003 telling me, listen, there's a plan in place uh, whereby you're going to be invited to a conference in Eastern Europe. Remember now, the, the, the World Wide Web wasn't as quite mm. as active as it is now. And they were going to do brochures and everything. And you may be invited to this all expenses paid and pay you big wages, take you away and you'll never be seen again. Now, there were two superintendents from NBCI, or not NBCI, the, the equivalent of NBCI and Garda headquarters came to see me about this. And they came to see me two or three times. Then there was another thing where it said, people are going to be talking to you and you're going to give you accurate information. Like it's basically telling you you can't do your job. So all this stuff was building up and building up uh, during that summer. And, you know, there was other criminals were making a lot of noise and making threats and and I, the INLA I really pissed them off royally that time um, because they were a bunch of thugs and drug dealers and everyone was afraid of them and they deserved to be turned over and exposed um, and it seems to be like a grand coalition the likes of that Liam Byrne fella like his clique 
the people he was involved with, like Fat Freddy, they, they were on the periphery of all of this as well. Like there was, you know, um, a young fellow, a younger guy called Christy Kennan was involved because it was, I think it was his idea about the, the trip to Eastern Europe at the time. But all these things started coming together and um, then they, then they, it, they seemed to have, what we discovered afterwards, I've, I subsequently learned all of this. I didn't know it at the time, but they, they decided, the police clearly were, like the guardian angels in the sense that they were working in the background and telling me nothing. Like these are the spooks up in crime and security. They call them, you know, the spooks, like our MI5, if you want to call it for. And they were listening to these conversations on the test. So that's clearly where the intelligence comes from. That's where most of it comes from. And they were hearing, picking up from informants. So they were dissuaded, I think, at the time. They were clearly dissuaded because then they decided we would just intimidate them. So then they poured acid all over my car and, then they started sending fire engines up and next thing the police started getting very fr- frisky around the St. Jay's. This is getting a bit heavy. Now we were getting regular attention at the time and then they came up and they put a very elaborate hoax, it was a hoax, bomb on the car. But the, it, they had designed it to make it look so when the army x-rayed it that it looked the real deal. Mm. So that meant at three o'clock in the morning and this is how intimidation works. They eva- ev- evacuated 150 of my lovely neighbours, lovely people, they're mm. my cul-de-sac where I lived. Mm. And that's all designed to make your life miserable mm. and make their life miserable because you're living beside them. Mm. So you, to make you a pariah out of you. Mm. And after that, then the manager, the, the managing director of the Sunday World, Michael Brophy, brilliant newspaper man, and Colin McGinty, my editor, brilliant editor, best ever editor ever. Um, they went and met the Minister for Justice, who was very voluble at the time and kicking our arses, and we were all we were all in his eyes scumbags, those crime reporters, and that was Michael McDool. And basically, what they had to do, he, they said, "Look, this is happening for months and months and months. We've investigated getting them army rangers, army ex army rangers can protect them, but they can't carry firearms. The only agency in Ireland can carry firearms is yourselves. Williams can carry a fire; it knows how to use a firearm, but he he won't be allowed to carry a firearm. So, what are we going to do?" So the next thing they put, put the equivalent of like a witness protection program thing, <clears throat> I had two uh, armed special branch officers with me wherever I went uh, and an escort car. And then at my home, there was 24-7, 365 uh, protection. Outside the door. Yeah, a cabin. Still there at my oh, home. Oh, a little we moved, cabin. We, two house, we, it yeah. moved with us through two houses. Like, like a Shomra. There. Little Shomra, yeah. In fact, people are saying I should should rent it out these days. Shomra Garda Shiokoma. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that's what it was like. And literally, there were witch every day. Like yeah. the, the, the bodyguards were with me for over Did two years. Did you get years. to know them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like some of them are retired. A yeah. lot of them are retired now. But they, um, they're still close family friends. Uh, the great, great, great friends. Like really good do, friends. Do they get scared? Uh, no, but in the beginning, they were very, very. Uh, like they knew an awful lot more than I did when they came to me. Like there was fellas doing things. That were, I said, "Lads, we're not. I'm not the fucking president of the United States. Yeah. You don't have to be checking the jacks before yeah. I go in." But there was, there was, they were, ve- they were put on a very high level of alert yeah. when they came to me at the beginning, because they were told what I wasn't told, and they said, this, this, "This is a serious plot. You guys could find yourselves in the firing line. You have to be." It also hadn't yeah. been that long since the Veronica Gear. Well, it was in, in, seven, seven years. years. Yeah, yeah. Long. You t- we, you, we thought that we'd never see that again. But then again, I'm lucky. I'm still. Life, you know what I mean. I, you know, I was protected. I know, mind us, the gods on one side and the police yeah. on the other. And um, but the police at the house lived at the house for over ten years. Then, yeah, uh, full time, yeah. And the great bunch of lads as well. And uh, 
I, I, that's one of the reasons I've always had huge respect for Angarda Shea because I've seen the amount of times that fellas have come to our house <clears throat> to protect me and my family uh, and look after us. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's a certain sort of dynamic in that kind of oh, relationship. Wow. Um, anyway, okay, so who did you name? Because you're famous for naming all of them. So uh, let, let's go through the names. Okay. Who did you name? Okay. <sighs> let me see if I can remember now. Yeah. Uh, uh, accurately. Mm. Brian Meehan uh, was uh, the man who for- murdered Veronica Gearn. The tosser. The tosser. I put that name. Yeah. The reason being because uh, this is a podcast, isn't it? Yeah. So it's okay. We would no filters. Uh, as Pat Kenny would say, put the children out of the room now. Um, but the tosser was because he was he was convicted of of when he was being arrested. He was arrested one night, and to show his arrogance, he decided to start pleasuring himself in front of a male or female garda. And uh, so I call him the tosser. Ex, like in fairness, you didn't have to be digging deep in the old uh, in the old name jar for that one. And then there was another one. I I, I went after. Um, uh, Eugene Holland and I called him Dutchy because his name was Holland like it wasn't you know like again not rocket science uh, and the reason we put the names on a lot of these like Georgie Mitchell I was with uh, John Trainer, who was the man who ultimately helped set up Veronica to be murdered the coach we called him and not, Veronica put that on him as a trainer um, I said to him one day Georgie Mitchell this Georgie Mitchell's a huge player what are we going to call him and he says, mm, oh, he's a dirty old bollocks. He, uh, he he waddles like a penguin. And I goes, I went back to the editor. This is back in the 90s. And I said, Jay, it's a great nickname for this guy, Georgie Mitchell. We call him the penguin because the penguin being associated with Batman. And all, mm. you know, it's a no comic book type thing. Mm. But again, it was a way of naming him and giving mm. him a name that people could understand and navigate to the stories. Um, who else did I give the nicknames to? Oh, the Westies. Uh, they, they, were in the tour. they were the first guys that, uh, they emerged around 99, Shane Coates and Stephen Sugg. And they were the first of the new generation are really, really, really ruthless and dangerous and extremely uber-violent criminals that started to emerge in the late 90s that put us on the on the track that we've been on ever since, that gangland thing. So they were out in West Dublin. Westies was the name of another criminal gang. It wasn't rocket science again to call them the Westies. Um, Psycho? Oh, yeah. Well, PJ Judge, yeah. And is that just... The, that speaks was, for itself that speaks for itself because he was the guy who was going to murder me at one stage as well and uh, PJ Judge the psycho definitely um, who named the monk the monk unfortunately I can't claim any responsibility mm-hmm. for and that why was the monk named the monk well he was nicknamed that because uh, Dublin Dublin goes are good old crack you know they like they have a good old, <laughs> they have a good sense of humour you would want to be I suppose in that business but he always was different Jerry was always different Jerry Hutch because he um, he was abstemious he didn't take drugs mm. he was sensible like when he was robbing banks in 16 and 17 you know imagine when you were <laughs> may we may we when I studied journalism first I started the first thing I noticed was Jesus I was very lucky I could understand I began to understand why what First of all, I began to understand that I could, how I could have become a criminal, could have become a criminal, and two, I realised then, as a result of the socialised the the, the 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 factors in my life and in my family, why I didn't become a criminal. Um, but so I'm just going back to it, when you and I were, if you and I were 16 and we were hopping on bikes and we we were robbing stuff, the last thing we would have done was save the money. We would have spent it, mm. you know, and we we're just ordinary, mm. uh, you know educated young men from decent background mm-hmm. but Jerry Hutch when he was doing robberies in 16 and 17 he was saving the money mm-hmm. and you know what his girlfriend got pregnant in 80, at 18 and this is I'm going to have to admit he's the only criminal I would have sort of a degree of admiration for or ambivalent 
admiration for. Um, his girlfriend got pregnant. He bought a house on Buckingham Street in Dublin for his wife and child, or for his girlfriend and child. Now, how many lads who are antisocial, dysfunctional, deviant, uh, delinquent criminal are going to have that level of stability in their heads to do that? Says a lot about a man, doesn't it? It does, but it says something that's not so uh, comforting either. Somebody that's capable, on the one hand, of being, in a sense, rational, normal, and even empathetic. Yeah. And at the same time, to be so cold-blooded, ruthless, and uh, and vicious. However... Co- denotes a certain level of sociopathy, which is even worse than the delinquent. A delinquent is a delinquent. Yeah, I agree with that too. But no, in terms of... Um, no, the thing about Jerry Hutch was, and this is again why I would, if you asked me before we started, you know, who's your who's your favourite criminal, so to speak? And I know I wrote a biography about, I wrote the last two biographies I wrote. One was about Gilligan, who I despised, who is the greatest and the living, the greatest living example of the word, the meaning of the word scumbag. Where I, And I also did one on Hutch, who I've always admitted I've had a sort of an ambivalent yeah. uh, attitude towards. The one thing about Jerry Hutch was he did not go around throwing his weight around. He did not go around bullying people. He he has been associated with a number of shootings. Those shootings would be perceived within that world as not being uh, quintessentially psychopathic. I know what you mean. They were, that he was driven. It's only business. But it wasn't just that. It was because this guy won't get out of my way and he keeps coming out. He's yeah. trying to kill so me. So it's business. It's, it's, yeah, it's business. And it's also the law of the jungle. And the law of the jungle, by the way, was what dictator happened in the Regency Hotel. And also the moral is, you, the law. there is no, there's only room for one law. Yeah. And that's the law of the land, not the law of the jungle. Yeah, 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 true. And so the, so the scariest, I think you've already said him. Who, the scariest criminal? Yeah. Well, say, not that any of them scare you, but the nastiest or... Oh, Jesus, yeah. The, the, the Dundons in Limerick. I often describe, I wrote a book about them as well. And I was very, I'm a very close friend and honoured to be a close friend of Steve Collins. Remember Steve Collins? Yeah. The brave man who stood up to those guys. And he lost his son. He lost his business um, because the premature death of his wife. And I saw what this machine did to them. Murder Inc., we called them. Mm. There was something actually so evil about them that the evil was almost supernatural. And I'm not, mm. you know, a, ooh, you know, one of those kind of mm-hmm. Ouija board types. But it was the nearest thing to supernatural evil I've ever come across. In what respect? The, these people in, in, created such and instilled such fear and terror in their victims and anyone who crossed them, that they the they were responsible. They, they said they were responsible for say seven or eight or maybe oh sorry maybe seventeen or eighteen murders. But the way in Dundon, I believe, having written a very comprehensive book about them and covering them for fourteen years, he was responsible for at least another ten young men. The deaths of ten young men, and these ten young men all went out and commit suicide, took their own lives because of the level of fear and desperation, and uh, how deeply it was like a pact with the devil. And these kids found themselves in an impossible situation. They used to groom kids and said, like the the lad who shot dead, Roy Collins was seventeen. He was a child. 
his grandfather and the detective superintendent in charge of the investigation, Jim Brown, sat with the kid in a police station and said, look, we know you did this, obviously, but we know you were driven to this and you were pushed into this. We need you to tell us who told you to go out and do the killing. And that young lad has been in prison since. Mm. He was prepared to give up his life because and stay in prison when he had an opportunity. And he did try to commit suicide or take, take his own life a number of times. Um, he was prepared because he was so terrified of these monsters. And I saw that happening to so many people. And that kind of evil really is... It's very unique, and that's why I, I, I sometimes call it like the Daniel Kinnan and Liam Byrne. Like Liam Byrne was always a nasty-looking little bastard, anyway. Like, he, and Daniel Kinnan's the same. But those guys, when they unleashed what they did to the North Inner City to wipe out the Hutches, which, by the way, in the Hutch Kinnan feud, the Hutches went in and tried to wipe them out. But wasn't it amazing? And that is something that your listeners will probably uh, identify with. An awful lot of the public sympathy moved towards the Hutches because these guys were being wiped. They were being wiped out. Cousins, brothers, uh, friends, you know. But what they did was they unleashed the truest blanket over the North Inner City where they exploited every vulnerability and every weakness in all the people, like mostly junkies, and get them to set up their neighbours for to be killed or set up sometimes relations. Like anybody who can do that can invest infest society like that. Mm. That to me is pure evil at its worst. Mm. And if you look at narcos and you think about what goes on in Mexico mm. and Colombia, uh, now we're not anywhere near that, but you can see what happens when that spiral does mm. get out of control or is allowed to thrive and grow. It's like a bacteria. Yeah. Can you, can you separate uh, <clears throat> this from your life? Like, uh, so for example... When I've become so inveterately um, associated in my own mind with my own job, right, that I see almost everything in life potentially through the prism of a comedy sketch. Well, I had to introduce myself to you because I'm looking at Michael T. Higgins. I'm looking at genuinely, um, what's her name, Mar Miriam. I'm looking at all these people you do and I'm meeting Mario Rosenstock today for the first time. <laughs> Lovely to meet you, Mario. By the way. Lovely to meet you. But in a way, everything I see sometimes, and this is the only way I can actually get through my job, is to potentially view everything through the prism of a comedy sketch. Yeah. And I wonder, is... That explains everything about you now. No, but I wonder, though, is, is does that go for you, though, as well? Is, the pris is there a prism of darkness through which you see things? I mean, you're, you're so exposed to studying, following, looking at, um, recounting thinking about, observing uh, these horrific... I'm not, I'm, I'm not front line. Can you been, wash it off at night? I haven't been front line, as I call it, no, front line, no. kicking in doors. Because the, the only place... No, but it's been in your the head. The only home for that is... But it's like been living in your head. It's been living tablet. in your head. Yeah, but you do live... To, like, I do an awful lot of um, talks. I've worked with a lot of victims of crime. Yes. And I do no, talks for example, for Paul, have you ever had therapy? Uh, no. <laughs> Why you suggest I should? No, I'm, I should. I'm, I'm not suggesting you should. I'm just asking. I, a question I do know. I, I, on a less, on a more seri serious, I did, and I do know. I, I have experienced. Uh, I'm uh, not being facetious. Post traumatic. Yeah. I, I did. I, I have experienced post traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was diagnosed with that, uh, with twenty years ago. But it, it it moved like it didn't stay with me for mm. long. Yes. Um, 
uh, a consultant psychiatrist friend of mine rang me up and he said, if you don't come to see me, I'm coming to see you. Yeah. And I said, okay. He said, because he said, you're from what I'm hearing about you, you're displaying classic signs of post-traumatic stress and I'm coming to talk to you. What were your classic signs? I don't know, just fucking irrational. <laughs> irrational behaviour. Anyone listening to this who knows me, said, that's what he's fucking been irrational behaviour since the day he was born. But yeah. anyway, apart from yeah. that. But no. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you do... Um, you do... Like, I see it... I, I, I When I academically study criminology yeah. quite extensively... And I study policing culture. And uh, there are things in policing culture we talk about what's called symbolic assailants. In other words, I, I, what that means is a cop walking down the street with you and with your engineer here and your producer. Um, he is going... Now I, I'm, I keep myself out of that conversation, of that particular equation, because he will see something that's going to happen that you won't see. Because you're not switched into it. You don't know. You're not expecting it. Mm. That's what calls him. I would see things that other people won't see. And I notice things about people. And all crime journalists are like that. Anyone who's on that edge, like somebody who's a nurse, cops do it all the time, prison officers, you know, people who are in a certain type of profession will see things that other people don't see. But... Um, no, I, I don't have to switch over. I do lectures uh, for people in groups about what crime is about and criminology and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, I, you know, I've helped, I, I work with some crime victims and people like that. But, no, but there is no switching on or switching off. Like, mm. these days I most write with commentary about them and write their backgrounds of who these criminals are. Um, I don't go around knocking on doors. So I don't, I'm not faced in, yeah. in anyone's face. And there's nobody's face in mine, if mm. you know what I mean. So do you know one of the things that struck me about you, actually? You're, you're, you're actually... Because I've met you a few times before and this is the same thing is happening today as happened to me the last time. It's as if you kind of come into a studio and you are Paul Williams, but it's kind of like, let's not fucking talk about this fucking criminal stuff. Let's just do a few funny voices. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's as if you kind of, in you're a way, the, you want to shake it off. To me, you're one of the best mimics in Ireland. You are the best mimic in Ireland. You are the best comedian in Ireland. And, I do, and I, I'm cognizant of the fact there's only probably two of you in it. <laughs> so only... fucking you're the top dog as far as I'm ah, concerned, stop. baby. No, no. You're, and you and Dempsey. Ah, Ian Dempsey. Yeah. One of the nicest and yeah. loveliest guys. Uh, uh, Dermot Morgan was yeah, a great brilliant. Friend, a good friend of mine. Well, do you love doing your impressions I, I then. Do your impressions then. Which one? What Do you have loads? I'm not doing anything. Do your Willie O'Dee. I went that. But Derby Morgan, he was he was the creme de monte, as Del Boy would say. You know, <laughs> uh, he was brilliant, and uh, you know, the only one that's filled that vacuum is you. So yeah. it, for me, it is, as they say, an honour, my son. All oh, right, thanks very much for that. Um, well, Paul, thank you very much for coming in and doing this podcast. I hope you 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 feel okay about sharing. All this sort of stuff. Just find that I've gone down another wormhole talking shite about crime all the bleeding time. And are you afraid? <laughs> By the way, one line. For... The, 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 he says, I hoped I'd come into this and I'd not talk. And fucking, they got me again. They got me talking about crime I'll again. You, the one, one thing I didn't want I'll to talk one about. fucking crime. story before I go. Yeah, tell, tell me. My wife, who has been the love of my life for the past 40 years, when I had bodyguards and they had automatic Glock 9mm pistols, and they used to say, the fellas who knew me best said, Polly, the gougers aren't going to kill you. And I said, well, oh, that's good to know. But I tell you who fucking will kill you. Your missus. We've got guns and we're afraid of her. So <laughs> I, I noticed I, I stepped away from that scary part of my life. That is, of course. Because that is, 
because you, you have to sleep with one eye open for the rest of your life. But you do also raise an interesting point there. It's your wife who's had to go through this. But she's a great woman. She's a very mm. strong woman. And she. How long have uh, you been together? 40 years, nearly. Nearly Jesus 40, 38 Christ. years. Jesus, I'm feeling old now. Yeah. Um, and where yeah. did she come from? Leitrim as well. Yeah? Ballinamore, yeah. Oh my God. So we're we're neighbours' children. One of the things I really admire about my, my wife, Anne, yeah. is that when she was a very young reporter, yeah. she worked in the Longford Leader for this man who was way ahead of his time, Lucius Farrell. Uh, and imagine this in provin- provincial, rural Ireland, 1977 or 78. She wrote a column in a local newspaper talking about why women had the right to choice. Mm. She was a true feminist. Mm. The Gestapo from mm. the Catholic Church arrived at her mother's home to terrorise the poor woman and nearly, because she really? was a God-fearing woman. Yeah. Like imagine in the 70s. Yeah. Imagine that even in the 80s, even in the, the 90s. Yeah, yeah. And I, recently I dug it out. They, they, yeah. they ran this, they had a Catholic newspaper and they ran this headline on the Angelus newspaper, as you call it, you know, instead of the devil's disciple kind of thing, newspaper. And they had no, no Anne Sweeney on the headline. Yeah. Which remember the Catholic Church, how powerful it was. Yeah. And that was distributed to every church right across the Longford, Leitrim, Roscommon. In a sense, she was blackballed almost. Almost. And, but the fact that she was prepared to stand up to them. Like, so therefore, when I got involved in this business, you know, in a way, she had already experienced what intimidation was like. Yes. And her attitude was the same as mine. Fuck them. So you're saying if she went through the Catholic Church. She could deal with anything. The monk and the Dutchy Holland or nothing. Absolutely. Mm. It, it, and it's, it, it, I've, she did and stood up for things much bigger than me. Yeah. You know, and the fact, when you look at it, when the abortion referendum came around and I kept saying to her, you should be talking to somebody about this. Tell people your story. And she never wanted to do it. But she was one of those uh, unspoken heroes behind yeah. the scene. Now, she won a number of awards for her journalism. But by Christ, like that, you had to, that was serious. That was serious courage. And the next part of her courage that she demonstrated was even deciding if anything to do with me mm. at all. So either A, she's totally mad, which she mm. probably is, or B, she's totally reckless. I don't know. Yeah, it probably says that you're not what I thought you were. You're not a psychopath. Complete <laughs> Not a psychopath. <laughs> okay, Paul, lovely to talk to you. Nice to Thank you, you Mark. come in. My friend. My thanks to Paul Williams, uh, this week's guest on the Mario Rosenstock podcast for that fascinating chat and insight into his life. Um, don't forget, Paul's book, The Monk, The Life and Crimes of Ireland's Most Enigmatic Gang Boss, is back in the shops at the end of June. OK, that's it from me. Please tell one other person, if you can, about this podcast or contact me directly, Rosenstock at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm on Instagram as well, if you want to find me there. I'm also on tour. A few more remaining dates. I'm going to be in Ennis, um, and I'm going to be in Tullamore and I'm going to be in Cork on the 23rd and 24th of June Friday and Saturday and finally I'm going to be at the Mount Errigal Hotel in Donegal We Daniel Territory on the 30th of June hope to see you maybe somewhere down the road take care same time same place next week bye